This is episode number 21 with Hamadi Jassim, the terrorist whisperer. Welcome to American Snippets, your source for inspirational, motivational, and selfless stories and interviews from exceptional people across the nation. And now, here's your hosts, Barb Allen and Dave Brown. Hey everyone, Dave Brown here from American Snippets, and today we have another amazing show for you. First, I'd like to thank Hamini Jassim for his service to this country. His story is so impactful that that is guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. You see, after surviving unimaginable horror growing up under Saddam Hussein's regime, Hamini leapt at the opportunity to fight back, and at 17 years old, he joined the Iraqi army. And at 19, his courage and leadership landed him a promotion, and he became the youngest command sergeant major in the history of the Iraqi military. From there, he was recruited by U.S. intelligence, and he became one of the most valued U.S. intelligence assets in Iraq. His work saved numerous lives, including top American officials, earning him the hatred of the terrorists and an order for his execution. Actually, uh, they were going after him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to capture him. Um, ultimately, he left Iraq and now he is a proud citizen of the United States. I would personally, again, like to thank Hamini for his service. His story is extraordinary and we are honored to share it with you on this episode of American Snippets. Now, here's Barb Allen with Hamini Jassim. Hi, I'm Barb Allen with American Snippets. We are here today with Hamidi Jassim. He um, has a very, very amazing story. He was born and raised in Iraq. He experienced imprisonment and torture in Iraqi prison at just the age of 12 years old. He then grew up and became one of our greatest intelligence assets and is credited with saving numerous lives, including Iraqi and Americans. Some of our top generals are included in those lives, and some of those generals have gone on today to publicly thank him for his service and sacrifice on behalf of our country as well as his own. Now he lives right here in the United States. He is helping us keep an eye on things here from our own homeland. Uh, he is known to many as the terrorist whisperer, which translates into uh, one of our greatest anti-terrorism experts that this country has ever had the privilege of working with. Hamity, thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my honor. It's an honor being with you guys. It is uh, so cool to spend some time with you. We've, we've had the opportunity to meet in person, and you've left a big impression on my own children. And I'm very excited to get now to share your story on a larger platform and certainly there'll be a bigger audience here than the last time we spoke. <laughs> and um, we'll just go ahead and get right into your story, okay? All right. Okay. <clears throat> so tell us a little bit about your your childhood, first off, starting off. You were obviously born and raised in Iraq, um, started off as a somewhat normal childhood, but then led into some turbulent times. I mean, growing up in Iraq, you know, as a child, I think that it wasn't easy. You know, there was nothing called a child in Iraq. You know, growing up, you were just living every day. You were not really um, enjoying your childhood. You, you really just lived by rules. And unfortunately, this is what it's like to live under dictatorship, especially like Saddam Hussein. So growing up in Iraq was difficult for me. Um, I couldn't understand. I didn't know anything about the politics. I didn't know 
who was ruling the country. I was just an innocent kid playing around that wants to see the world and see everything. Um, but as older I was getting, I started realizing that the, you know, the world was not sunshine or rainbows and you're living in Iraq and everything is being watched in Iraq. They, we have a saying uh, called that the wars, uh, the, the walls have ears and they can hear you. And what it meant is that people could not even trust each other within within its own families. People were afraid. You know, we had the Ba'ath Party members, which is Saddam Hussein political party, and they were very powerful. <clears throat> they had so much um, authority. They can, <clears throat> I'm sorry, get you executed with, within uh, a small report they have to write with their own pen. And uh, sometimes we have a saying that says that, you know, a pen can kill you before a gun does under Saddam Hussein. And, and it's true. Um, it, it, it was terrifying. It was, we were not comfortable. We... Um, you can feel, you can see the parents, you can see your family is not comfortable. You can see people are afraid. People are trying to avoid trouble in every way as possible. Uh, that's what I was growing up looking at. Uh, it actually, it, it kills the confidence in children. Yeah. I believe that the children that were growing up to watch that to this day are hesitant about making any decisions or hesitant. And, and there's why um, we have a different generation in Iraq today that stood up to ISIS was able to kick ISIS out, was able, I mean, Iraq now just kicked ISIS completely out of Iraq on its own without any support. And that shows you the difference on the generation, that this, yeah. this newer generation did not live this way, was able to do better. I mean, I did not taste really what it was like living under Saddam Hussein until the age of a 12 when I was walking out of middle school and I was going home and right. it was a common practice for Bath Party members and police officers and people who are actually part of the Bath Party member. Back then, you couldn't tell who was a Bath Party member, who was a regime member, who was not a regime member. Um, you just can tell by the way they dress, by the way they look, uh, sometimes the way they would walk, the way they would act. You can tell that's a regime member. Looks cleaner than other police officers. And you tell that this police officer or this teacher or this principal is a regime member. And when I was walking out of middle school, literally all my teachers were a Bath Party member. So, so you learned it, it was, as a young child to constantly have that kind of eagle eye and be looking out. Even when I mean, you're just hanging out with your friends, you still had I mean, to be just, alert. Just imagine you being taught math yeah. by a serial killer. Oh, my God. By by yeah. a guy who is actually a bath party member and who could kill so, you. And he carries a gun. And that's the, the, that's the crazy part is that a teacher was armed and had in your so much classroom, in your classroom, in your classroom as he's teaching course. you yes. wow. in your classroom wow. and, and and you're looking at it and and dare you uh even if you are right you can't you can't argue with that teacher you can't have any problem no. with it and and the fact that most of them w w back then would carry sticks in their hands wow. and that's the sad part we looked like a bunch of animals yeah going into and they will hit you with that stick oh my if God. you don't answer right if you have to open your hands and imagine in the middle of the winter, you have to open your hands and someone had to hit you, hit you with a dry stick like seven to eight times. It, it, it was like going to prison every single day. And that's how it really felt. But when I was walking at a middle school age 12, I got to taste the first time what was really dealing with the regime. And how was it like if you want to be in the other side? Yeah. So I, I was walking. I had money in my pocket and I kept this money over months and months. And I wanted to buy myself a shoes. And that was really what I wanted to do. And I didn't really realize it was a common practice. They'll stop you. They take money out of your pocket and you're supposed to give it to them. And I didn't want to give the money that day. And that uh, police officer stopped me and said, um, if you have any money in your pocket, do you have any cigarettes? And I just looked back at him and I said, I, I don't have anything. And I kept walking, hoping that I would avoid him 
he will leave and that will be it. And that really didn't go that well that day. <laughs> he ended up getting out of the car and he looked at me and he said, if I search you and find you have money in your pocket, it will be the last day in your life. Wow. And, and you I were 12 years point. old. I was 12 years old. He was a six foot tall man. I was only Jeez. a kid that comes maybe to his waist. And uh-huh. he um, grabbed me and he found about half of the money in my pocket. Now, when he smacked me hard to the ground, I mean, um, I couldn't really hear with my right ears anymore how hard he really hit me. Um, I went down to the ground. I got hit so hard I couldn't hold it. I, I cursed him back. And when I cursed him back, this was a big deal in our culture. Um, the curse was really bad. I think I cursed his sister or something at the time. And <laughs> and he grabbed me and he threw me in the car and he kept driving. And to this day, I was hoping that, you know, maybe they'll t- drive me around and let me go. I still remember the conversation between him and the two guards. And one of the guards says, you know, he's just a kid. You took his money. Why don't you just let kick him, him in the butt and let him go? And he looked back at him and he said, if you keep talking, I'm going to throw you with him tonight. Oh my God. And the, the car went silent from now on. Nobody asked anything. No one said anything. And all I can see that this old man who was sitting next to me uh, was just shaking his head. And we drove until we got into the Rocky Ministry of Interior. And I was wondering, what are they going to tell the people in president? What are they going to say I did? I didn't do anything. I was just walking to go home. And he, he wanted to take my money. What was he going to say? And he went in for about five minutes. And after five minutes, they uh, came out of that room, and I see there's all cages, and it looked like a animal kennel of some sort. I had no idea what it was. I never seen a prison at that time, at, at that point of my age. And he came out of, after five minutes, and he said, "You know, um, come outside of the car, go into this room. Here's a pen. Sign on this paper." I didn't know what I was signing on. Right. It was dark. It was uh, people in uniform I have never seen before. Had uh, bats in their hands that looked like baseball bats. And I took the pen and I signed. I was terrified. Yeah. I signed. I didn't know I signed in a paper stating that I attacked a police officer who was a Bath Party member and I was about to assassinate him. I was about to kill him. Oh, my gosh. So this was a serious charge. This was not. It's no uh, joke. Yeah. No joke. This this you could kill you for this. So I, I signed that paper and I was thrown in prison with a bunch of adults. And here I was. And it wasn't prison, as you say, an American prison. It was not like. You have bathroom and, and bed and, and pillow. You don't have any of that. It's a concrete floor. And everybody's sitting in the concrete floor. It's like an animal wow. a place of some sort. And I sat on the floor. People couldn't believe in my age what I was doing there unless I did something really terrible. And I didn't. And people kept telling me, what did you really do? Did you stab someone? Did you attack someone? Are you fighting with somebody? And I said, no. I just refused to give my money. Do you think do you that think- he carried it that far because you lashed out at him because you cursed yeah. at him. I mean, that's why. Is, I mean, just because this, he was offended this, this that you cursed our, at him. No, he took this, it to that level. I wish I, I wish we had more time and we'll go more into details into yeah. it. But this just to show you how heartless people were. Yeah. Who worked at their regime. And these are the same individuals who worked for who is ISIS today, who used to be Al Qaeda a few years ago. Right. These are the same individuals. And this is show you how heartless they were, how there was no caring whatsoever to any human being. Um, that lived around them and the power that they lived in. Today, North Korea lives this way. Mm-hmm. Many, many countries that lives under dictatorship lives this way. But we had our own. You know, we, we, we felt like, you know, some people may say, you know, Hitler times was the worst. And as Iraqis, we would say, you know what? No, Saddam time was even worse. Yeah. And everybody lived through different experience, different times, different uh, 
really terrible times. I spent, you know, long story short, about a few weeks into prison. And after that, um, if my parents didn't pay uh, the money they had to pay the director of that prison, I would not have left the prison. I would have uh, lost my head. And I, I really would have never left that prison. Um, I was tired, exhausted. Um, they, they hit me. They, they were beating me every day. I was being treated as a traitor to the country. I was not being treated as a 12-year-old kid who refused to give 250 dinner huh. to a corrupted Ba'ath Party member or regime member. So that, I mean, that experience alone actually could sort of emotionally incapacitate somebody for, for their entire lives if they didn't push back against it and didn't have that w internal wherewithal to overcome that. And yet that wasn't even the one and only thing that you experienced that you had to keep finding your way through. I mean, it just continued from there and sort of picked up and got worse until you found your way to join the Iraqi army when you were, you were 17 when you joined some. Yes. yes I was 17 years old. And truly when I, when I left the prison, that was the change, right? That was the change that, that turned my life around. I changed at that, that moment. You know, I was a kid when I entered that prison and no more. You were, yeah. When I left, I was not a kid. Nope. Because I friended some of these prisoners who were there for a very long time, um, who were truly fighting in a revolutionary fight against them. Then when I left, I was someone who was, as they put me in the prison with a bunch of anti-government, when I left, I was an anti-government person. Yeah, I was not that kid anymore. I, I looked at them differently because I got a taste of what's really like living under these people. And I, five years after I left prison, um, my whole life changed. I, I yeah. didn't go to school, really. I wasn't excited about going to school anymore. My grades changed. I went from being an A student to a terrible student that was failing literally everything. I would walk every day. I would not avoid anybody. People would bully me um, in school, but I'm not allowed to fight back because I'm, I was some kind of a probation. Yeah. You do anything back. That's some it. Of these kids You're are, some of these kids are Bath Party members, families, yeah. and I, I can't hit them back. I can't do anything. I can't complain. Sometimes I have to take the bunches to the face and not say anything. Oh my gosh. And just avoid yeah. it and walk home like nothing happened. And this is how you have to live. For five years, what I said is I walked by the wall every day and I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. I, during the holiday times or the break, I would leave outside of town to go to my grandfather's farm in the South or go do something, be away from people. Basically, I was avoiding every, all the humans. Until 2003, when I opened my front door and there was an American soldier in front of my house. And that was the biggest um, door that opened in my life. Yeah. And can because, you still picture him standing there? I mean, it was a weird moment. You opened it up you know, and there's I never this guy. Seen, yeah. never seen what an American looked like in reality. I never seen what an American looked like. I have no idea. People thought these were Saddam Hussein tricks. People thought maybe the Americans will pull out and Saddam is coming back. People totally had the idea that Saddam is not going away. Right. Regardless, there's an American standing in the, in, the, in the front of our door that Saddam is not going to go away. He, he's going to be here. And that's what people believed. But part of me felt like that day, this is over. Because I had watched the invasion come through mm -hmm. from the borders all the way down. And people were expecting this fight to go for like six months or a year. It happened like in 21 days and it was over. Yeah. And and this is how weak Saddam was. And this is how people were weak, untrustworthy. They were not really – that to show you that the people did not have any belief in them. So when I opened that door and I saw that man, I, I really was shocked. 
I just looked at him and, you know, it was very interesting because you're looking at a white guy for the rest of, for the first time in your life wow. and you, you see him and you're looking at him and it's something you've never seen before. And when I looked at him, I said, sir, where's you from? He said, my, I'm from Texas. And I shut down the door and I ran back to my family <laughs> and I said, you know, this cannot be an American because this is probably the whitest American I've ever seen in my life, the whitest <laughs> Iraqi I've ever seen in my life. Um, yeah. It cannot be an Iraqi because right. he's too he white. Do- he looked different. And yeah. I went back and I just asked him and I said, is, are you guys going to be leaving this time? And he said, no, we're not leaving anywhere. We're staying. And that really made me comfortable. And as I was talking to him, no sign of any Ba'ath Party members who lived in my neighborhood were there. You can see their homes. They're gone. It's like you woke up from a bad dream and mm-hmm. all of a sudden that your, your nightmare is over. And, and that's really what changed that, everything. Yeah, that, that prompted you to um, go join the Iraqi army, even though you had to. They didn't just let you join. Right. Or something about your age. And you had to come back and kind of. Yeah, I. I, I ran your age a little. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what they let go of the old Iraqi military yeah. and they were establishing new Iraqi military. Uh, many Iraqis disagree with that decision, but I was the happiest person in the world um, to see these bastards go out of jobs mm-hmm. and, and, and not have anything and not be part of anything anymore. And I ran to the Iraqi recording center and I, I went there and there was an American guy standing there and I, I showed up. I was 17 years old. There was about maybe four people on the line because the Iraqi military was mandatory during Saddam Hussein time and that they did not want to be part of the Iraqi military. It was only four people, four hopeless people. And I think I was number five <laughs> that wanted to join the new Iraqi military. So I decided. So I decided I wanted to, you know, to go and um, and, uh, and wanted to be part of the Iraqi military. So when I went into the line, he looked at my ID and he said, I thought you were 17 years old. Uh, he said, uh, you know, 17 years old cannot be part of the Iraqi military. You're, we only take it 18 years old and above. And I was disappointed. I didn't know what to do that day. <clears throat> I couldn't believe I would have to live another year, not knowing what was going to happen during that year. It's a long and time. not be part of what I wanted to be and something I've been waiting for. So I went back and I was so hopeless looking for every resource. And I found a guy in my neighborhood that fakes IDs. And our ID cards in Iraq were all handy handy written and it w- didn't really look as a professional as an American driver license. Mm-hmm. So he, he opened it up and he changed my date of birth and he made me 18 years old. And he said, you know, if I was you, I would go back the day after. I wouldn't right. go back today. You know, probably will be another American there and you're good and you're going to slip through. And of course, I couldn't wait for that. I ran back to the recording center maybe two hours later. I changed my shirt, my hat, and I went back in there and I stood in the line and there wasn't nobody in the line. It was just the same exact American <laughs> either. He was just a tough bastard that could handle the Iraqi weather. He probably was from the South somewhere. So I, I didn't know what to do. I went through and I was hoping he wouldn't recognize me that we're all Iraqis. We look the same. Who knows? Nope. So I went through and he looked at my ID card and he smiled and he said, I thought you were 17 years old two hours ago. And I looked back at him. I said, we had a birthday. <laughs> and he laughed so hard. He laughed. And he was like, wow. He said, how did you do that? And when he looked at me, he's like, what, what, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to do it? I said, I just want to be, I just want to join the Rocky military. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? I'm not supposed to do this, but if you go get one of your parents to sign this application, I'll let you in. I don't care about the policy. There's no constitution in Iraq at the time. There's really nothing that you have to stick by. So yeah. I grabbed my mother who doesn't speak any English and signed the application. And 
I went through that door oh, and man. literally when I crossed that line, all the pain in my life was just going out of the window. Um, I felt confident that it was the first time in my life uh, to stand up for that change and to be part yeah. or product of that change. It, and it was the first time in my life to be able to have a gun and fight for my rights and fight the people that destroyed my childhood, that destroyed my life to have an equal fight against them. Uh, and it was really like a table turning around. Uh, it just, it was just a beautiful shift that they went from being in power and to being chased and here yeah. we are. So, so I went in and I became part of the new Iraqi military. So that feeling of finally having a sense of some sort of power to fight back and sort of take control where your entire life, you and your family and your friends, you were powerless against these people and you lived in a world of fear and constantly cowering and everything you all went through. And now for the first time, here you are, you're 17 years old, where 17 year olds here are getting their full permits and their juniors in high school or seniors in high school, you know, they're playing on the football team and all this jazz. And you're a 17 year old who has been through things that people here cannot even begin to imagine. And now you're handed a weapon and given this opportunity to take back some power, to get some control over your own destiny and your own life. What That feeling alone, even though maybe you should have been scared because you're now placing yourself outward on the front lines and all that, so you could say that you were even more at risk, but that feeling that you were going to be able to do something about everything that has happened and, like you said, be a part of changing things to impact and save people throughout your country, that that was a very powerful feeling for you, yeah, and it gave you the energy to move forward. Yeah, I mean, if you if you read the book, I mean, the nice I did part read about, it. We're, we're going to talk if, about if you, that too. Yeah. If you if you read the book, there was a part about Kevin Smalling, my Marine Corps instructor. Yeah. Uh, who wrote in the book? Who I, I received my training by yeah. uh, by United States Marine instructor, a gunnery sergeant named Kevin Smalling from Kentucky. And I I didn't learn how to drive from my parent. I learned how to drive from my Marine Corps instructor. That was the first time in my life getting in a car. Mm -hmm. And I believe because I was selecting among an elite team, it's called the PSD team at the time, uh, and it was about 20 members, about three of them dropped out, it was only 17. The training was really hard. And we were like the first NCOs in the Iraqi military, the first non-commissioned officers right. that were being in the Iraqi military. And we had three Marine Corps instructors. And when I got in the car, for the first time in my life, I pretended that I knew how to drive. <laughs> Why I got not? in the car <laughs> next to my Marine Corps instructor and I sit in the driver's seat and he said, go. And to this day, I don't know how I drove that car. Was that a stick shift? Uh, it was not. Thank God it wasn't. <laughs> I was going to say, mean, that would be a pretty good I would have crossed. I would have yeah. crossed my Marine Corps instructor his life for sure. If that was <laughs> but, Little did but, he know he was at the greatest risk at that moment. He, he looked at me <laughs> and, and truly how... If, I, I will lie to you if I tell you I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared right. to go into a step like that. Everybody was because the whole country is outside of the base waiting right. for you to, to engage, to fight. And and, and there's like 150 Iraqi soldiers uh, in just the waiting to versus, kill you. Yeah. versus everybody in the country. And that, yeah. that was the scary part. But I was just as, as twice as excited. That was part of that, right. that I'm going to come out and I'm going to voice my opinion and force the law for the yeah. first time in, in history in that country. And, and then, you know, when I drove that car with my Marine Corps instructor, it, it just drove, 
you know, it moved. Mm-hmm. And that what really made me feel, you know, everything is going to go fine. Everything is going to be okay. We just got to, if we can go through the training, we're going to be able to go through what we went through. And, right. you know, my, my Marine Corps instructor, I think he thought when you, when you read the book, he thought there was something wrong with me because they were beating the hell out of me, torturing the hell out of me through training to make sure that I can handle as much pain. That was and I nothing. I was smiling yeah. the whole entire time. Yeah. And they, they didn't know. They thought I was something wrong with me. They thought some of my wires were not there. Right. So they, 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 until they realized that I was just excited to be there. And um, when I made it out of the training, I got deployed to uh, Haifa Street. But at the time, Haifa right. Street was uh, most dangerous two miles yeah. in Baghdad, Iraq. It was really, really bad area. There was movies done about Haifa Street. I was sent to be in Haifa Street, and I ended up engaging in a battle that was about an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah, and you talk about that battle battle in your book and in your talks. And um, ultimately, you guys were in what was a no-win situation, and you lost so many members of so many men that day. Out of of the 29, I think nine of us came out. Right. And And you were the leader of that. Uh, eventually and I was you became when I got it. there I wasn't yeah. that's the that's the side part is that when I got there I wasn't the leader I was a battalion sergeant right I was the squad um NCO that got there and I had my my middle lieutenant who was my battalion leader but my lieutenant ended up um getting killed he killed yeah and he so you in that situation I, you had yeah. to just sort of find a way to compartmentalize yeah. the horror yeah. and step yeah. up because you had these men depending on you and somebody had to t- take control Everybody, so you just you snapped know, to it yeah. It was a moment where you broke psychologically, you broke right. mentally. And that was like the first time. It, it was like, it was a battle where it was going to determine either they won from that point right. or we won. Because they wanted to capture an Iraqi soldier to behead him on national TV. Right. And that we were the trap. We were the soldiers that was trapped that they wanted to capture a life and put him on national TV. So people get discouraged from joining the Iraqi military. Right. I mean. I did not want to be the guy to have a knife go through his neck. Nope. I wanted to fight to the last second. And that day I was determined and convinced about 100% that I was not leaving that place alive. And you Just, but you I, didn't let the, the men know what you were thinking. I remember this in the book, and this was a very uh, strong moment for me when I read the book and the power of perception and all that. And you knew that if you're men who were scared and um, really in fear for their lives, you knew that if they were aware exactly how difficult the situation was, that maybe help yeah. wasn't coming as quickly as they thought they were. You knew you had to give them the perception that it was going to be fine. It we was, were going to get out of here. And you it, did it that. Was, it was very difficult yeah. because the Iraqi military was on his beginning stage. Right. We did not have much equipment. We did not have RPGs. We did not. We barely had nothing. And our QRF was very limited our quick reaction force right. that would come to save us end up getting hammered themselves and what is wasn't able to make it to us within seven miles away um it was hard yeah. to tell the soldiers that you got nothing you're on your own and if you have a three bullet left in your magazine that's all you have and it was difficult until the american military that came and got us out well, i never realized the damage i never realized how many we lost i think I, I saw about six soldiers that got killed in front of me but i didn't realize that there was more until the fight was over and then i realized there was only nine of us and we all were injured badly which we were about to give up i mean part of me i was about to give up right. i was thirsty i was tired i i was young i wasn't experienced to handle something like that but when you hear the voice of a terrorist on on a radio talking to you 
you knew that these guys are not gonna they're not gonna stay gonna they're gonna kill you in the mm-hmm. most horrible way and i did not want them to put their hands on me while i have a breath in my chest i wanted to make sure that we hit them as hard and we made them think that day you know because of when you read the details in the book is that i made them think in the radio that i was fine i mm-hmm. was not tired and i was ready to take the fight as far as they want to take it um in reality i was broken i was injured i was right. bleeding i but that was the first touch to understand the psychology of how th- how these terrorists thinks mm-hmm. um that's the first step in my life to know how they really thinks and that they can be tricked and they're not really too smart as we think they are right. and from there i was promoted the day after to be a command sergeant major in the Iraqi military. And I was the youngest, yeah. the youngest in history to this day. And I yeah. was 18 going on 19 years old. And this is a rank that's someone about 25 to 30 years older than me uh, that would wear this rank. Um, my command sergeant major in my unit at the time quit his job and went home because he had kids. And he felt, you know, if your soldiers just got beheaded and run out of ammo, there was no QRF coming for them. This is not our fight. And they end up leaving. About 50% of our soldiers end up leaving and they quit wow. their jobs. I, I had nowhere to go. I just stayed. And when I got promoted, I was in a position that just was not a easy position. As people no, were excited, yeah. people would be honored to have a, a promotion like that. But that was just getting me step closer to death in my yeah. country. Because yeah. it's different yeah. rules. It's a different way of fighting and it means you're just going to be on the front lines until you die and that's what it was for me and from there i got transferred by a request from the american military to be the command sergeant major for the iraqi ministry of defense which stands for the iraqi mod and and i believe i got picked up because i was the only nco that spoke english um and i was the only nco that was not from the old iraqi military that was from new iraqi military who was more uh, pro-American, trained by the Americans, and more Americanized, so they felt more comfortable about placing sure, me there sure. to be in that position. So I, I went there, and I was honored and happy to be there, and I walked through the building, and it was a new mission, a different sort, a new thing for me that I had to protect 45 to 50 American advisors who would come from the, red, the green zone to the red zone where the MOD is located, and I will have to receive about 4,000 Iraqi employees that will come in every every single day in this building and and you're responsible for the security of the entire building and everybody in it and that was a seemingly impossible so the the, the americans all you have to do make sure that the americans were safe that's all you have to do that they come in and out because without these americans you can never build the new structure of the iraqi military Uh, you have to build every department needs to have an advisor of some sort and they all between the rank of they all officers they have to be between the rank of a major to a Fulbright colonel, and um, and some of the to- top some of the top officials in the United States military were present in that facility. Yeah, absolutely, I yes. mean, name it. Yeah, I mean, it was the kind of building that was like name it. You get Paul Bramer, the the at the time the president of Iraq. He was right. not the ambassador yet. He was in charge of Iraq. He was the ambassador of Iraq. He he, he would come every single day. Uh, the, the U.S. ambassador. You get Gerald Petraeus comes in. You get John Casey. Uh, John Dempsey, you get world leaders, yeah. uh, world ministers of defense, UK minister of De- ministers of defense, Australia, all the NATO leaders that have to show up, and sometimes Congress members of the United States. It was one hell of a mission. It was really worse 
than fighting in battle because you got 4,000 Iraqis that comes in from the red zone, which about 40% of them works for terrorist organizations. And it's just really tough. How are you trying, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many soldiers in the ground you have and how many measures of security you set up, you're, you're still dealing with the most dangerous terrorists in the world. And you detail in your book. We won't go into that all now. I want people to get your book and we're going to talk about where they can get that. But I want people to get this book and read this story. But ultimately, through a series of events, you wound up saving the lives of everybody, everybody there in um, one of the bravest, most blatant acts that wound up blowing your cover for real and led, yeah. led to the events that caused you to have to leave that country for your own safety, for the safety of your family as well. And so you had to leave no trace of where you were and who you are in order to protect your family that stayed behind. You had to cut off all communication with them because you know these people are serious and um, it is your way of protecting your family to separate yourselves from those that you left in Iraq, correct? It was, it was, um, it was difficult. It was not easy. It was really, um, I would say sometimes I would be up about 48 hours, yeah. no, literally no sleep, zero sleep, not even a nap, not even a break. And the reason why, because you're under so much pressure. Um, when I was recruited by the U.S. intelligence, it's not because I was a superhero or um, I, I was the right guy. It's just really there was so much music going on. And this was there was so much going on beyond what the Americans could understand. In that building and in Iraq in general, right. it was and the you, nature. You, you know, understood it. America showed up in Iraq knowing that there was only Al Qaeda and that's it in the world. But when they show up in my building, there was Al Qaeda, there was the Islamic State, all the subsets, there was yeah, Better Corp. There was the Med Militia. There was every Iranian uh, intelligence operatives. It was the battle of the spies. It and was I want like to touch on too, yeah, all these different facets of the terrorists, and this leads oh, to your name, the it, terrorist whisperer, in that. You also helped rescue yeah. everyday citizens who would be kidnapped yeah, by these terrorists. And you negotiated, if you want to call it that, with the terrorists to release these yeah, hostages. I, and it's it's really the, that uh, when Amer- when the, the Americans were there, when I was working with U.S. intelligence yeah. officers, when I, was, when I got recruited by these intelligence officers officially to make sure – my job was to clean the dust out of the picture – to identify who is who, to have a bio of who's who, we needed a better understanding who was entering the building every day because this was a building that was very vital, very important, very, um, very. It needed to be secured a hundred percent, and beyond the security that we have, beyond everything, we needed to understand the way they think. Um, many people ask me like, why, why would you be called the terrorist whisper? Uh, what does the terrorist whisper stand yeah, for? Yeah, it's an and, offsetting name to some people. And, and, they and they, really, they react is, negatively what to it. it. Is, what, what it is, it was, um, yeah. there was an uh, an ocean under, under the iceberg. It, it was it was a lot more what Americans can understand. Uh, there was so many agenda. Each terrorist organization works for its own agenda for one different things. And they're not just about killing Americans. They're also working on getting around Americans, getting positions in the Iraqi government, mm-hmm. being in control, um, which would make America look stupid because they're getting around you. They're taking their weapons. Right. They're taking even money that America is trying to put into Iraq. So it was very dangerous that America could have been given money to build Iraq, but it would go to terrorists. And 
and that's how smart they were. So my job is, is what I was doing differently is I understood the psychology of these terrorists, the way they were thinking, the agenda, um, their plans as they were changing on the daily basis. Every day their agenda would change. And, and it just imagine not just about killing Americans. Right. You have Al-Qaeda and Islamic State whose priority of killing and hurting Americans or kidnapping Americans or doing anything. And this was the only building in the world where you can get hold of an American that easy. Yeah. Where you can get an American that high rank of a colonel or major or, or, or an officer. Yeah. You know, imagine Bergdahl was only a specialist in the United States Army. We end up trading him. President well, Obama. Don't get me started him. on that one. Don't get me started with four Al Qaeda yeah. leaders. Just imagine if they pick up an American of that kind. What could what devastation? Where the devastation. war would have go, and yeah. the war would just turn around. So th- th- it was very not easy. And my job was to understand the music that was going on yep. that they couldn't understand. The Americans couldn't hear. Uh, I was an Iraqi. I, I blend in. I walk into the building. My job is to protect the building so I can be everywhere. So I literally was recruiting my own resources within the building. And right. each department will be controlled by a certain terrorist organization. And there will be always the one guy that doesn't work for them or just placed there by mistake or just sitting in the same department they are. And that where I was really coming around them, where they were never expecting yeah. to be watched or be, be tracked. They thought they were watching us the whole time. In fact, and we were watching, you were them, watching the whole them. So, so it, it really was understanding yeah. the psychology of these terrorists, understanding the way they think, understanding their agendas, understanding uh, their operations. And some of these people or people who support those people still reach out to you today, right? You get these messages from them. Yeah, I mean, I get threats in the daily basis from overseas. And you're like, yeah, I get I get threats from overseas. Like, I, 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 I you know, it happened. <laughs> like, when it's you, no big deal. Yeah. When you when you take down, here's what really went different in my story. Yeah. <clears throat> and here's what really I'm proud of is that this is an enemy that has never been slapped in the face. Truly. Yeah. Everyone you is scared of them. You destroy a cell. You kill 10 fighters out of them and out of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. The, the next day, they'll bring like a thousand fighters from all over the, the world. Right. This is how capable they were. So they don't care how many fighters you get. But the one thing that pissed them off during my process is that I was taking down main operatives, leaders right. who were leading, who were the brain, who were the people who brainstormed all the agenda, all the operations. And they're the type of terrorist organizations. Once you hit the right guy in that cell, the whole, goes, the whole cell just goes down. You got them from it, the top down. You just you hit the, the, the one angle. It's like engineering. Mm-hmm. You hit the one angle. In that organization, and the whole thing goes down. And, and you had the ability to identify and that, that and get it. And, and that's what they really couldn't yeah. understand. And that's why towards the end of my career, they put everything aside and they wanted to figure out who was doing that and what were they were doing wrong. And that's how smart they are. They always came back, but it was difficult and a rare situation. Any intelligent asset that worked for the United States government or the Iraqi intelligence probably lived about the longest life they lived was probably about six months Crazy. and they were either captured or assassinated or killed. And the reason why, because you have family, once they figure out who your family is, they hold your family hostage mm-hmm. or they kill your family. You'll end up going to your family either way and they're going to kill your family. The only difference in my side is that I was someone who never went home. Yeah. You, you understood I, that. And, 
And again, I don't want to go into too much because I want people to buy your yeah. book. I want them to sure. read this book sure. and do this story. And the, all the sub stories that are involved in all this are just very, very difficult to imagine. And to read that is really powerful. So today I want to, we're going to wrap up with what you, what you're doing today. You're here in the United States. You have a wife, you have a family. Um, and I have to say, I almost pity the guy who tries to date your daughter when she's older. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> God. Oh my God, good luck with that. I mean, you're trained to read body cues and you can spot deceit and um, yeah, good good luck, good luck to that. Um, we'll we'll just, put him through a lie detector first. Before. <laughs> I can't even imagine, but I kind of want to be there. Like uh, you could probably sell admission to that. Um, so you also go out and you take your story, but not just your story, but you take lessons learned from that, and you take it to corporate events and nonprofit yep. events. And I mean, your story when applied to broken down and applied specifically to the need of that corporation or that group or that meeting, you really have sort of a lesson to be shared with every audience that you speak to, depending on what it is that their primary need is. There's something to pull from your story. And there's really, I imagine when you're speaking to anybody who says, oh my gosh, my company, my business is in all this trouble. This is impossible to overcome. I imagine you have a way of making them understand that nothing is really impossible. It's just the amount of work and sacrifice and struggle you're willing to put forward to overcome that obstacle. Um, and how, how are you met when you, how are you received when you go out to these events? You know, honestly, I, I, I started speaking because I wanted to deliver my message. I wanted everybody yeah. to hear my message. And then it got into, it, it was surprising to see that many organizations and project management institutes and corporates and uh, associations of some sort were able to take some part of what you're doing and apply it into their business. And the reason why, because I managed the most dangerous building in the world. Yeah. You were managing one, the most dangerous building in the world. It was the most dangerous operation literally in the world. And you were operating under the pressure where no mistakes are acceptable. Right. And this is what businesses are doing today is that they operate a lot, they make a lot of mistakes and they learn from them, but you can operate in a certain way where you will never make mistakes because you will have pre-prepare everything and you will have to put the worst outcomes ahead of you and to learn about them and, pre and rehearse for them before they even happen. And that really what made me successful in what I was doing. And uh, a reason why I stayed alive, reason I kept my life, uh, myself alive all that time is because we were rehearsing every bad thing, every bad thing that was happening to us. And we were making sure that we are used and immune to the situation. If it happens, we are able to slip through it. And patience was, of, of course, a requirement and right. um, finding out about all your outcomes. And I found that surprising that project management institutes benefit from the intention to detail that I was paying into this operations because you're doing intelligence, you know, like intention to details is, is required for you to pay attention to all little details and everything you were doing. I mean, look, if I didn't pay attention to detail, um, back in, in 2006 and 2007, 15 Americans would have one home in a box because a guy was building a suicide built right, right inside of the Iraqi MOD. And if I missed one little small detail. It would have been tragic, um, tragic for all this. Where, where he was disappearing every fifth, every 15, mm -hmm. every 45 minutes, he'll disappear in about 10 to 15 minutes every hour. If I didn't pay attention to that small detail, I would have not known there was a suicide built being built inside of the building and 
he would ha- one of them would have blow himself up yeah. on 15 Americans and they would have one home in a box. I mean, th- the responsibility it's was huge. big. Yeah. Um, it was not a couple thousand dollars loss. It was not a million dollar loss. It was not, there was no price in your loss. Yeah. So you always have to think of the children and the women um, that are waiting for them back home. Yeah. Uh, I looked at every American and especially someone like yourself, you, you have went through this experience and uh, you, you know what's like, what, what is it like and how much impact you puts in, on you to the rest of your life. Um, you look at every American like they have a 12 months. Right. And it, during these 12 months deployment, everything can happen at every second of it. And your job is to make sure that you are you are the goalkeeper. You're the guy that pushing everything that could happen until they can get on the plane to leave back home. And yeah. And what happened next to me? is another guy shows up. You know, one American gets in the plane and I friend them and I know who they are and I, I know their families and I know all about them and I get comfortable. And soon I, t- I take a breath that they left, they're safe, they went home. A new person shows up and here they are showing me their pictures of their children and their wives. And so you and, feel responsible. And, and, yeah. and it is, that's, that's how it is. So um, do you still work with the intelligence community today? I don't. Just to any honestly, degree, do you offer them advice or guidance, I, or are you just completely separated? I, I don't. I think that I um, being shot two times, um, my face is known in Iraq. Yeah. I don't think I can do any more work. I'm happy and honored during the time I served. It was the surge in Iraq. It was right. one of the worst yeah. times, of course, you know. It was one of the worst times ever in Iraq. That, that was the time I served through. I mean, Iraq today is, is a lot more safer for Americans, but... Um, Back to your question is that I as a consultant I, or yeah. I, I, I do work as a consultant yeah. to some you know doing a lot more on the training part. So I worked for about six years doing a lot of a training and simulations for the guys who are deploying overseas right. to Iraq, getting him uh, part of my book became an educational tool for the US military is now called an insider threat that actually uh, teaches American military personnel not to get compromised by the enemy awesome. to make sure that they're not to trust everybody around them. So that's what I was do today. But mainly I do speak and, and, right. and taking my story to the corporate business. And you, people will have to read the book. I know. To, I was just going to say. There's a lot uh, of details. So, I'll have to be here for 10 hours to do it. But <laughs> So if people want to get your book or find out about having you come on out and speak, and I have to say, I would so highly recommend it. Highly, highly recommend anybody who needs a speaker uh, to come reach their audience on any level to check you out and reach out to you and have you come on out and speak to them. It will not be a decision that you regret in the slightest. And you'll be so glad you did it for a Absolutely. long time to that, come. So your website. The book, the book, um, if, yeah. if someone wants to have it autographed, of course, yeah. you can order the book from anywhere uh, you can. It's available all right. over. Uh, you can, if you want it autographed, you have to order it from the website. Okay. Uh, it is www that terrorist whisperer.com. Right. So, uh, the terrorist whisperer.com will attach some links to the feature yep. story when we post it and, um, we'll have follow-up video to go with it. Hamity, thank you so much for my everything you've done for our country, for your country, and for taking the time to sit down and chat with us today. We are excited to share your story. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. Yay. Thank you. All right. There you have it. That wraps up another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Look, Hamity's story is so interesting. Um, 
It's such an extraordinary story, and I just want to thank him again for being on the show today. And again, thank him for his service. Uh, if you want to learn more about Hamity, pick up his book, The Terrorist Whisperer, or even book him for uh, a motivational uh, speaking engagement. Uh, he does do motivational keynotes and, and speaking, so you can book Hamity as well for that. And all you need to do is visit the theterroristwhisperer.com. Uh, and as always, uh, Barb Allen uh, puts together an incredible piece, an article, uh, to coincide with uh, uh, the podcast episode here. And so learn more uh, about Hamity uh, and watch the full featured interview we did with him besides listening to the podcast here uh, just by going to americansnippets.com forward slash zero twenty one. Okay, and you'll be able to see the see and read uh, the full featured uh, piece that we did on Hamity, the terrorist whisperer. And if you found this story as interesting and extraordinary as we did, definitely help us spread the word. Share it with your friends. Share this podcast on social media. Help us get the word out. Help people learn more about Hamity and uh, you know what he did for our military and how he saved American lives. Again, I can't thank him enough for his service to this country. Uh, as always, Barbara Allen puts together an extraordinary article and featured piece uh, on our podcast episode and on Hamity. And you can uh, watch this full featured interview that we just did with him uh, and read the article as well by going to americansnippets.com forward slash zero two one. Uh, and one last thing before I let you go, uh, as always, we love feedback, um, really appreciate reviews. So if you could kindly give us a review on our podcast, it's, it's how we get discovered. It's how people find us in iTunes. And uh, the more people that find us, the, the bigger impact we can make because um, we're sharing extraordinary stories from exceptional people all across this country, people who have sacrificed, people who have given back to their communities, people who fought for this country, people who are paying it forward, inspiring others to do great things. And the more people we can we can get in front of, the better. And it all starts with you leaving a review for us. Uh, on iTunes. So if you haven't done that yet, head on over to iTunes, American Snippets, leave us a review for the podcast, and we would really, really appreciate it. And don't forget to follow us on social media as well. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. If you have an extraordinary person or story or message that you think we should share here on American Snippets, uh, drop us a message. Just head on over to facebook.com forward slash American Snippets. Send us a message. Tell us about this extraordinary person or story that you think we should feature, and uh, we'll get them on the podcast. Uh, so that's all we got for you today. That wraps up today's show. Uh, once again, this is American Snippets, and we are living, defending, and promoting the American dream. We'll see you next week. Take care.